Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the U.S. has taken out Iran's top military general. What happens next? The world is concerned we are heading for another war. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, global powers are warning that the world has become a more dangerous place after the U.S. assassinated Iran's top general. Uh, what is exactly the story here and how do we move forward? Uh, Ferry de Kirchhoff is with us, senior fellow, faculty of social sciences, graduate school of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ferry, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. With pleasure. How is the world viewing this today? Well, the world is looking at it askance because it is certainly has raised anxiety all over the world, and we're still wondering what is the ultimate U.S. strategy. Now, on the one hand, after the attack on the American embassy in Baghdad, there was clearly a need for the President of the United States for both domestic politics and also real foreign policy to react. Now, he's chosen a target which is going to create waves of instability in in the region, and I think that's what is really worrisome. Uh, You've seen already the reaction on the stock exchange. You've seen uh, Macron, the French president, saying that the world is much less safe today. You've had the same reaction from Brother Putin. So it's really a question as to where we go from there, and I presume that's what we want to be looking at. Tell us about this general. Obviously, uh, we've heard responsible for the deaths of many, including Americans. Uh, Tell us about this general and and how much of an impact this will have on Iran. Well, Soleimani, Qasim Soleimani, is probably... One has to remember that he is a general. He is, uh, mind you, some people call him a spy. Some call him even a diplomat because of his influence pervading into the whole Middle, Middle East. But he is first and foremost an official of the government of Iran. And I think one has to emphasize that to to make a distinction between the Osama bin Laden or the Abu Bakr al-Baghdi and all these guys. We're we're, we're talking about whom a guy who we're accusing of being a terrorist, but he's actually a senior personality of of the government of of the of the government. So one has to take that into account. Sorry, the phone is okay. That's okay. Okay. So, uh, so that's the, the, the first point. So the, the second point is that he was also the, the leader of the Iranian Quds uh, commanding. So what we're talking about is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, who are uh, the, the, the force that is protecting, actually, Ayatollah Khamenei and formerly Khomeini, uh, the guardian of the revolution. Now, Qasem Soleimani is the leader of the forces uh, of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And as such, he is also a very powerful man, and a man who's meddled into the Middle East, starting, for instance, with the 2006 Lebanon war against Israel. And I think that he has had a major role in preventing Israel to win that war against Hezbollah. And you know Hezbollah being one of the key allies of Iran and being the one who were defending uh, Syrian uh, Bashar al-Assad against, against the, uh, the allies. Now, on the other hand, one should not forget that despite what uh, Mitch O'Connell has just said into the American Senate, that at certain stage uh, that actually 
uh, Suleimani was in, in perfect harmony with us in terms of ISIS. And I'm somewhat surprised that Mitch O'Connell would actually denounce uh, uh, Soleimani as a creator of ISIS, because that shows a total misunderstanding of what Iran is all about. Iran is all for stability to their advantage, and terrorists is certainly not the kind of people they would be supporting. In fact, Soleimani lost a lot of his own people fighting ISIS, and there were times on the ground that the Americans and the Iranians were coordinating to make sure that they wouldn't hit at one another or hit the same target. That, of course, is now water under the bridge because Soleimani is also the, the architect of the anti-American uh, posture. It is also something that, in fact, is seen in, in very badly in both China and, and, and Russia because the Russian and the Chinese are always in favor of anything that reduces the Americans. Uh, President Trump said that this should have been done before. Why has this been done now? Well, there are several reasons for that. The first is that uh, Trump is facing a major political problem because there's, there's a, with the U.S. you always have domestic policy trumping the foreign relations. Sorry for the bad pun. But in this particular case, he was looking for a target to compensate for the attack on Baghdad because he didn't want to have a legacy the same which President Carter had and he, or the Benghazi crisis, so he had to hit and strike, and that's why he did it now. But it serves also his political interest to, you know, to distract people from the, the, the domestic turnover in the U.S., particularly with the new revelation about, about his influence on cutting aid to Zelensky. So I think it's a very opportune moment, but it is also a very important target that he achieved. Now, the rest of the world will have to now co contend with the reaction of Iran. Iran doesn't want war with the U.S. Some will argue that they are at war. There is no hope in hell of the GCPOA, the nuclear agreement, ever being reconducted for the foreseeable future. But Iran has some capabilities, to, to particularly in the cyber domain, to really create a lot of mess for the U.S. And I think that whether it's uh, American diplomats abroad, American installation, American base, I think there's going to be an, a major increase on nefarious response by the Iranian targeting American interests. You're going to see possibly some more uh, ships uh, being attacked in the Gulf. The Strait of Oman may, may be also closed for a period of time. There is no limit to the asymmetric reaction of Iran in this context. Uh, obviously, uh, many in the world don't appreciate what Donald Trump is doing. Uh, is this conflicting this issue? So is this a win for the United States? Okay, domestically, it is a win for now. I think internationally, Trump has already indicated that he doesn't give a damn about his allies. There's never any consultation. So in a way, that act weakens the solidarity of the Western world because of the way it was conducted. But as I said, I, I do sympathize with the fact that irrespective of the domestic political situation in the U.S., the American president had to react uh, because of the attack 
on the American embassy in Baghdad. Whether the selected uh, target was the right one, the question becomes what validity does one give to Pompeo saying that there was some imminent attack against other, against other American interests. In that, in, if that is actually true, the problem is that we'll never know exactly whether there, there had been some targets that, uh, that uh, Soleimani was aiming at. But if that's the case, then the reaction is perfectly legitimate. The problem, the, and you use the right word, this was an assassination, and this was not condoned by any United Nations resolution or whatever, and you've seen the reaction of the Iraqi themselves condemning it as, a, as an attack on their own sovereignty. So we, we, are, we are definitely entering a new unpredictable phase uh, and, and I don't think that the Western world will come out the winner unless, uh, un unless Lindsey Graham's suggestion that a full attack against Iran is waged, in which case that we could be in third world war. Uh, so we're, we're, we're talking about a very dangerous situation. The question is, how much is Iran prepared to wager in terms of retaliation without, without necessarily provoking an all-out massive attack against them? Uh, that's, that's where more or less I, I stand, but I can't predict the outcome from now at this stage. Uh, as you mentioned, this was retaliation for what was happening outside the U.S. Embassy. Who makes these calls? Is the, Because obviously when something like this happens in the world of Donald Trump, he's front and center. How much of this is the military staff behind him and the intelligence community that he's often criticizing? Uh, how much, uh, how much uh, of them are yeah. behind this as well, opposed to you, the Trump? If you are the president of the United States, then uh, you are the one saying to your guys, Give me a target. Give me something to uh, to 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 retaliate, and and I think they're coming up with all the other, the, the 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 possibilities. And of course, the presence of uh, Qasim Soleimani on the ground in Iraq, uh, which is a common common feature, would have come up immediately. But it is definitely the American president who decides. I'm not even sure whether he was given a wide range of of, of option other than killing Soleimani, because uh, right now you. He's, he's facing the problem of Iraq uh, fighting w within itself. There's a kind of counter-revolution in Iraq because of the heavy presence of Iran in, in the, the Eastern Front. And, and the, the instability in Iraq is actually a, 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 a product of Iran's meddling. So whichever way you look at it, it was, it was hard to find another target at this stage, and the president of the U.S. was very happy to do it. The real issue is not having done that. The real issue is what is the U.S. strategy in that region. What, he, what the American president has done uh, against the Kurds, allowing the Turks to literally kick them out of a region within which they've been living for centuries, is, is another case in point, is that there is not an American strategy. There's targeting here and there, and we don't know. That doesn't enhance the situation of the U.S. in the region, and the turmoil is increasing. Israel, of course, is, seeing, is, is, is finding itself both vindicated and with more anguish. I'm sure that Brother Netanyahu is delighted, that, as he said it himself, because it, it, it strengthened his case for staying in power, even though he's under, under potential conviction. So th there's not a single area in, the reg in that region that couldn't be a, face some consequence of this action. But I don't think the American president gives a damn. He's on a day-to-day. -day. He's not even on a week-to-week. -week. 
Hmm. Uh, many now talking about retaliation. Iran has said it is coming. Uh, is that interest that in that are in and around the Middle East, or could we see lone wolf attacks in the U.S.? We could see some serious uh, cyber attack. Uh, listen, if Kim Jong Un can can attack us cyberly, you know that you have to appreciate that the, the two countries that are the most sophisticated in terms of cyber attack beyond beyond North Korea are, are actually Russia and Iran. And so I would expect a lot of messy stuff uh, from various quarters. And the cyber is the one for which it's harder to respond, it's harder to pinpoint, it's harder to counter counteract. And I would see that as one option. But don't forget, you also have Syria and Lebanon, who are allies of, of Iran and could be used as, as mercenaries, in a way, uh, as part of the retaliation. As I said, the, the Iranians, because of their weakness militarily as a, against the U.S., have other options that are all asymmetric that could do a lot of harm, but it, it, it will take time. The Iranians are very sophisticated. This is something in the West we don't seem to appreciate. Even their policy regarding the shipment of oil and, and uh, what they've done uh, on, in, in Saudi Arabia, in Aramco, uh, it, all of that is part of a policy of saying, listen, guys, pay attention. We can do a lot of damage. And you just have to start behaving and stop, stop, you know, hounding us because we can do more damage than you can to us. And I think that's part of the, the strategy of Khamenei and the strategy of Soleimani. And I'm pre- pretty sure they'll find quickly a replacement for him. Barry DeKirkhoff has been with us, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Barry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. With pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The assassination, many are characterizing this, the assassination of uh, Iranians' top military uh, man. Global powers are warning the world has become a more dangerous place after uh, the U.S. assassinated Iran's top general. To talk more about all of this, Jennifer Johnson is with us, correspondent, global, new, uh, global, new, uh, global national, I'm sorry, and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Jennifer. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me. How is the world viewing this? Is this a win for the United States? Well, I mean, the the reaction to Soleimani's Soleimani's death is that, you know, this was a very dangerous man. He's responsible for hundreds, if not thousands, of lives through various uh, decades and various wars, the Iraq War, the Beirut bombing. Um, But I think there's concern not only here in the United States, but across the world about how Iran is going to respond to this, the retaliation um, that they are vowing. And so the heads of Britain, the heads of France, are are calling for cooler heads, for negotiations. Um, U.S. allies are supportive of this airstrike. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu from Israel recently spoke out uh, about an hour ago supporting it. Um, Saudi Arabia was apparently uh, new about this. Um, and so there is support for this person uh, being taken out, if you will, but concern about what happens next. Uh, it's a very confusing story and world to follow with the U.S. president because so many people dislike him. Therefore, you're not always getting an objective view on these stories. Uh, president Trump has said this should have been done earlier. Is, that, is, is this just a distraction for him from what's happening with impeachment back home? Or is, is, this, is this a win for him? 
Well, it's, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, the president should be undergoing an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate sometime this month. Obviously, this is going to be a huge distraction, and, um, you know, it possibly will be a win for him. The Secretary of State said this morning that they had intelligence information that Soleimani was planning an imminent attack against Americans and possibly could have killed dozens, if not hundreds, of Americans. That attack apparently was going to be carried out in the region, uh, potentially in Iraq itself. Um, So I think in terms of distraction, this helps President Trump. In terms of whether or not this is a win for him, it will be viewed as making Americans safer, possibly. But again, it depends on what happens next. Uh, In regard to why now, many have said, as as you've just said, and I think Pompeo uh, echoed this, that there was another attack coming on American targets. Has there been any confirmation of that or any more detail if that is in fact the case? No, we don't have any more detail. The Soleimani, uh, the U.S. believes, was responsible for the attack December 27th in Iraq that killed an, uh, an American contractor and injured some service members. They also believe that he was behind the attacks on the U.S. Embassy earlier this week uh, in in Baghdad. But what he was planning in the future, what Pompeo has described and the Pentagon is describing as an imminent attack against Americans, um, we don't have any more information about that. I can tell you just in the past few minutes, um, the Pentagon has ordered an additional 3,500 U.S. troops to the region. Um, so clearly they are expecting some kind of retaliation or some kind of uh, reaction from Iran, which Iran, Iran's president is promising. What does this mean for Canada? What does this mean for the Canadian military? I, You know, it, it's hard to tell at this point. I think that you know, the Americans, as I said, are putting additional U.S. troops there, whether or not uh, they will then have to reach out to its allies and ask for more support is unclear. The president hasn't spoken yet. He has been on Twitter. He is heading, uh, leaving Mar-a-Lago, heading to Miami at 3.30 this afternoon, and I expect that we will hear from him then. Um but we are, you know, other than what happened last night and the uh, reasoning behind it, we're short on details as to what, you know, what happens next, other than, as I said, the additional troops heading to the region from the U.S. Iran has said there will be retaliation. Uh, any, obviously, lots of American interests in the Middle East. Will we see anything on home soil, do you think, or even if it, even in the form of a cyber attack? Well, I I think that's the great concern. Um, Mike Pompeo did say that Soleimani had orchestrated an attack here in Washington, D.C., and it ultimately failed. So there is a lot of concern that there will be an attack on U.S. soil. Um, And, you know, that experts are are addressing that today. The um, House leader and the Senate leader, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, are asking for a briefing Um, They're asking for Congress to also get a briefing as to why this attack, this strike was ordered, and uh, what, if anything, you know, are they expecting in terms of retaliation and what the latest intelligence is to try to prevent that. We remember what happened when the U.S. went in and took out Saddam Hussein. It created a vacuum. ISIS then formed. Any sort of chance of this happening here? Uh, I understand that this this man, although as effective as he's been uh, in in his military career, he's easily replaceable. Is that the case? 
Um, well, he was taken out, and his deputy was. He was commander of the Revolutionary Guard's elite Cuds force. Um, and as I said, his deputy was also taken out in this strike. I'm certain he will be replaced quickly. But he was considered by the United States as a terrorist and a very powerful man. So um, from the United States standpoint, they believe this is a blow to the Revolutionary Guard. And as I said, it's elite force. Um, but... Iran has proven to be tough militarily, so he will be replaced quickly. Jennifer, did anyone see this coming at this point? Is this considered uh, to be too too extreme a retaliation for what happened at the U.S. Embassy? I believe this has been in the works for a while. Um, Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who is a good friend of the president, says that he was briefed on this several days ago. Um, and he is saying that he was at Mar-a-Lago and learned of it. Um, so I think this they certainly have been targeting him for a while. I would say um, once they got intelligence information that a strike or an attack against Americans was imminent, um, they decided that they were going to go after um, Soleimani. So I don't know how long this has been in the works, but I do think the events of the past week possibly accelerated the strike. Uh, Russian and China, where are they on all of this? Um, you know what? I honestly can't even answer that question That's because okay. um, I don't know. I, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know. I've been on the air for several nope, hours. No problem. I haven't had a whole lot of chance to take a look at that. When do when do officials expect a shoe to drop here? I mean, is the world on eggshells till something else happens? I think the world is on eggshells. When we've we um, we at Global News share space with NBC News and Washington, and um, we have gotten a lot of experts through the doors this morning, had a lot of experts through the doors, and they're, you know, concerned that there will be reaction and it'll be swift and there will be some kind of attack. Um, as I said, you know, there are there were 750 or so additional U.S. troops that were ordered to the region a few days ago. There's another 3,500 on their way. And so I think the U.S. at this point is prepared for anything. The U.S. Embassy in Baghdad has ordered all citizens to depart Iraq immediately um, and basically telling them depart via airline, while, you know, if possible. Otherwise, get to another country via land. Um, so... There's, there's great concern there's going to be some kind of reaction. Last question, Jennifer. Is Donald Trump reaching out to any allies to try to explain any of this or try to come up with some sort of uh, uh, cooperated effort here? Well, again, that's a tough question to uh, answer. I would I would think he certainly is. The White House put a lid, what we call a lid, in the news business on all information, so we haven't gotten anything out of the White House. And the lid is supposed to lift uh, before 2 o'clock today. The president, as I said, is departing Mar-a-Lago at 3.30, heading to Miami. Um, so I'm certain he will talk to the press and uh, he will be asked that question, I'm sure. Jennifer Johnson has been with us, correspondent for Global National. Jennifer, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you. Jennifer Johnson uh, out of Washington with world reaction to what has happened. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and on the line with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, nice to speak with you, Scott. Uh, how is the world viewing this? Is this a win for Donald Trump and the United States? Well, I think it's a win for Donald Trump in the United States because it will divert attention from his many, many problems, not the least of which, of course, are uh, the uh, investigations that are uh, uh, surrounding his impeachment. But uh, uh, 
Uh, and it will play to his uh, right-wing base without a doubt in the United States. Uh, globally, it's uh, a, a lot different. Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, and the other Gulf states on the west side of the Persian Gulf will uh, be very happy about this. Uh, Iran, obviously, on the other side of the uh, uh, of the Persian Gulf will not be. Europe generally condemns almost everything the U.S. does anyway, uh, but they have extra reason to be nervous about this because what I think, Iran's military is much better than most of the militaries the U.S. has faced for a long time, but almost everything they have is 30 or 40 years old. They have very potent missiles, but other than that, not much. The big fear is that the uh, Iranians will send out um, great armies of terrorists around the world. And uh, the easiest place for them to do that, I think, is in Europe. And so probably there will be attacks in Europe. That will be the blowback that really harms the American reputation there. Uh, and uh, the biggest surprise to me, though, is that uh, Trump was always huffing and puffing, and a lot of other U.S. presidents, starting with Reagan and through Obama, have huffed and puffed about Iran. But finally, there is something big taking place, and uh, a lot of people uh, do not like it. The president said this should have been done long before. Is that accurate? Is that, is that an accurate statement to make? Well, there certainly have been a lot of opportunities to do it before. Uh, every time that Iran uh, uh, takes uh, a ship hostage in the Strait of Hormuz, or every time it does something outrageous there, every time uh, it's uh, Hezbollah um, lackeys or proxy, proxies in Lebanon rain uh, missiles down on Israel. Uh, they have been stirring the pot in Yemen for a number of years. Every single one of those things, plus a lot of the terrorism that has taken place in Europe, uh, they are behind. So there have been many, many previous opportunities. And uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of U.S. presidents have talked about doing something about this and never did. Uh, the remarkable thing about this, Scott, is Trump seems to have done it so quickly. He's on a golf holiday, while the Canadian Prime Minister's on a surfing holiday. But on his golf holiday, uh, Trump managed from threatening preemptive strikes to carrying out one against uh, the second most popular, maybe the most popular guy in Iran among the hardliners. Uh, he managed to do this, stir it up in six or eight hours. Uh, that is a very, very quick spin-up. Why now? Uh, many, as you mentioned, many said this have, could have been done before. Why now? Uh, Pompeo saying that there was evidence of a of an imminent attack on American uh, interests. Uh, is is that the reason for this at this time? Or as you said earlier, domestically, is this a distraction from impeachment? Well, I think it's certainly the latter, but there will be elements of the former there. There is no doubt that uh, Iran has targeted U.S. soldiers uh, in Iraq uh, through their Shia militias. People don't generally understand outside the Middle East that uh, there are a lot of Shias in the government in Baghdad and that there is a very large and very wealthy uh, Shia minority. Uh, the Kurds and the Shias in Iraq sit on almost all the oil wealth. The Sunnis, who are the largest population group, uh, have almost no oil wealth to speak of. And Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni, used to keep all of that in check 
uh, through violent methods. All of that, of course, after the American invasion in 2003 and subsequent occupation uh, got away from them. But uh, there is a big element in Iran uh, that uh, has a direct influence on events in Iraq. And what I think we're going to see here is they push. It could lead even to a civil war within Iraq. There's going to be blowback, I also think, in Lebanon. Israel will be emboldened somehow. The Saudis and the Israelis, maybe a case of the tail wagging the dog, have been after the Americans for an awfully long time to do this. I think that is another part of uh, the answer to your question, that finally they've got through. Uh, the U.S. president has been very sympathetic to Israel. He moved the capital uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, something U.S. presidents have not done, although they've thought about it for decades. Uh, he's very, very supportive uh, of Israel, and now Israel will be asking, I think, for even more. They like the United States to do their dirty work. Uh, who doesn't want the United States to do their dirty work? In another, in another way, Canada has the United States do a lot of its dirty work, and our conscience is clean. So it, it is a very complicated situation, and uh, it will be fascinating to see how this turns out, but I don't think it will turn out well. I think it will be bloody as hell. And uh, the next few weeks, there will be tit for tat and escalation. And where will they hit? And that's where they could hit Canadian targets. And there are a lot of Canadian oil workers in Iraq. People worry about the Canadian soldiers that are there, Scott. Well, there are only about 250 trainers, three helicopters, and they operate from an extremely secure base uh, near Baghdad. Uh, almost all of them do. Uh, but uh, we have some special forces troops there, too. I can't really say what they do, but they are there, and they may be in some kind of uh, anti-terrorism role, uh, but there are not a lot of them. But there are a lot of Canadian oilmen. There are Alberta oil companies there, uh, and uh, all across the Middle East, Canadians being Westerners could be kidnapped. I notice that uh, governments are putting up warnings, don't go to the United Arab Emirates. A lot of Canadians go to Dubai on holiday, for example. So there are a lot of different ugly ways this could play out. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Matthew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Hope to speak with you again. Happy New Year to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A toll highway that is just north of the 401 uh, that travels pretty much from uh, Mapleview, Burlington area, the 403, the QEW, all the way out now to 115, uh, which heads up to Peterborough. And uh, I know about this simply because uh, 25 years ago, I bought a cottage in the Kawarthas as an investment, just a cheap shack. And I remember thinking, you know, in a few years, they're going to have a highway that goes out here, and this is going to be great. I mean, it's going to cut like 20 minutes off my time, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then, unfortunately, it was sold uh, by the Mike Harris government and um, purchased by a company, and we'll find out more about this in, in just a sec. But now it's just a, it's just a cash cow. It's just a moneymaker. And, uh, you know, from my last anecdotal information, I think it's costing us about 45 bucks a trip each way. So that's kind of like a tank of gas. And then you got to come home. 
So I'm all for paying, paying my share. I'm all for paying tolls. But at what point does it get out of hand? Uh, I remember as kids, we were big campers. We used to travel down into the States, Myrtle Beach, Florida, all the time uh, for holiday. And my dad used to have to stop and throw a few uh, uh, trinkets into the, you know, the machine at the Florida Turnpike or whatever. Um, but never 45 bucks or 90 bucks or, or, you know, whatever it is that we're paying now to travel on this highway. Uh, now, with 2020 starting and lots of new lo- uh, laws, rules and regulations and such, uh, the 407 people have now decided to charge drivers more in the summer. Uh, the price of traveling the 407 ETR through the greater Toronto area becomes variable by season this year. A move that's presented as a way to ensure the electronic toll highway doesn't become congested during busy times of the year. That's the biggest pile of crap I have ever heard in my life. Because, you know, if more people traveled on the 407, maybe the 401 would be would be moving in some way. And that was the whole idea of the 407, was to take congestion off the QEW and the 401. That was the whole idea. Then the tolls came in to pay for it, which is great. But then it was sold by the Conservative government to pay off a deficit, which the following government just raised back up again anyway, and we're back where we started, except we don't own a damn highway. And every time we throw down 45 bucks to go on it, it doesn't go to the province to help the hospitals and the education system. It goes to another company in Spain or wherever. So now they are raising the rates during the heavier times because more people seem to use this for their holiday travel than they do for Monday to Friday business travel. Because I can't imagine having to use this highway every day to get to work. You could not afford it. The 407 tolls rates will generally be the highest during the summer from May through October and the lowest from February to April, which proves to me this is not a highway that is being used on a regular basis. It's a waste of time. The rates also vary by time of day, of week, weight of vehicle, direction of travel, section of highway used. For example, it'll cost as much as 65, 70, sorry, 65 uh, cents per kilometer for light vehicles between 3.30 and 6 on weekday summer nights. By comparison, uh, 5.3% uh, per, uh, less travel the same peak times from February to April. And this just continues and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and we all know, we remember back in the old days after the liberals took over from the conservatives, they fought tooth and nail. Let's do something. We got to lower the price. And, of course, nothing could ever be done. It's a privately owned business now. It's a privately owned highway. Um, so, you know, as a person who's u- who uses it, I'm, I'm, I'm ticked off. But on the other hand, you could say, well, user pay. You're using it. You pay for it. I'm not using it. Why do I pay for it? You know, we had tolls over the Skyway Bridge to pay for it. And then once it was paid for, it stopped. But to me, this is highway robbery. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a dang thing we can do about it. To talk more about all of this, Harry Kitchen is with us, Professor Emeritus at Trent University up in Peterborough. And he is with us now. Harry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, I'm, you're welcome. I, I think after listening to you, I don't know what we're going to talk about. It seems to me you got on a roll, hit all the issues, and 
Um, and we took the motion out. We, uh, uh, I think we can talk about some of the things. So uh, how much of this is a concern in your neck of the woods for people up in the Peterborough area? Well, well you know what? Uh, I have a transponder. I use that road uh, a fair amount in Dan because I have family in Hamilton, Brantford, and down in that area, Kitchener. And uh, I use it because 401 is too congested, trucks all around you, uh, cars darting in and out, and I pay it. And you mentioned about $45. I actually think if I go in, Dan, from 115 now uh, to Burlington, I think it's probably it's probably going to be about $80, $75. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I, it, it I is, think so. It's, it's the priciest toll road in North America. Robin Lindsay and I did a study on financing roads and transit in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area in 2013. And we uh, quickly surveyed a number of toll roads. And 407 at that time, which is what now, six years ago, almost seven years ago, was by far the uh, priciest of all toll roads. There's no question about that. Um, and we, there are a number of issues here, I think, and you identified all of them, I believe, when you were talking before. Um, you know, we had a situation, first of all, the price of the road, the, go- the government sold it and got, what, $3.1 billion for it. Um, and, uh, I mean, as far as the company's concerned, I think that's, uh, to the company, I mean, that was looks to me like a real steal. Yeah. And I think that's been argued all over the place. I mean, when you look at the price of a, a future asset, it seems to be when you sell it, you got to do a projection of the demand for the road, projected revenues from the road, and you discount, do it over 30, 40 years, whatever period you choose, discount it back to the current time and take present value. Well, if you did that and looked at any estimates of demand, I mean, the present value in, in 1999 surely would have been way, way, way ahead of $3.1 billion. Hmm. And, um, but I don't know how the calculation was done. I mean, as I understand, the contract was fairly secretive. Uh, not many people knew much about it. Um, and uh, but it, let, let, going on from that, um, it, it, the toll road is it, to start out. The toll road is quite expensive, mm-hmm. um, and you know the n- notion now. And how do we in Peterborough think about people? I think actually there are a few people upset with it. They use four hundred one, but most of us, like myself, we use it infrequently. I mean, we think it's great because we only use it infrequently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guys who use it frequently, I, I'm with you in your earlier comment. I don't know how you could use it every day if you had a job there. No, it would be impossible. And then, you know, what, it, what amazes me in all of this, um, Harry, is that the fact that they're raising the rates in the summer because there's more traffic. The fact that there's more traffic in the summer means that this is not being used as a daily commuter highway. It's being used as a destination highway, which was not the purpose of the road in the first place. The purpose of the road was to relieve pressure off the 401. Right. Yeah, and that's true. And, uh, I mean, there's a couple of issues in there. All of the literature on how you charge tolls on toll roads suggests that you charge higher rates in busier times. So I can see the justification for charging higher rates in busier times sure. to cut down on congestion and get people to use alternatives. One of the things that came out of this, I mean, the expansion of four, it's, inter- it's, it's an interesting case you ran. One of the, exp- the reasons for building this road was to take pressure off um, of the 401 network. But, you know, there was a study done, uh, and therefore to reduce congestion, but there was a study done in, in, uh, by a, um, an economist in U of T and a couple from the U.S. back, I think it was about 2008, on... Uh, Expanding, expanding the number of lane kilometers in highways to reduce congestion, it doesn't work. No, they just more cars. You build more, people yeah. drive more. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, the, we, we, we got a number of issues. And, and the concern, I, I think one of the biggest concerns, it seems to me, with 407, and I think you alluded to this as well, what are we going to do about it? Because we don't own it. Yeah, so there is, there is, and, and the province has been through this before, back when the Liberals were in power, way back when, when this was sold after right. the Mike, Mike Harris government. They were all going to court and trying to figure something else, but nothing ever really changed. Well, they found they couldn't break the contract. Yeah. It was going to be too expensive. Now, it's a real problem. I mean, uh, most toll roads uh, that I'm aware of, they are owned by the state, particularly in the U.S., owned by the state, and may be managed by a private sector, but that that's a management contract that's still controlled by the state. This is an example of a private company owning a road. And it seems to me, I'm trying to think of an analogy here, but what would it be like, let's suppose a private company comes into Hamilton and buys up the municipal golf course, mm. and then just starts charging whatever prices they want. What they can say is, well, you've got alternatives to go to if you want. But the funny thing is, and the 407 was supposed to be the alternative. Well, I know. And, and they put a charge on it. But what they will tell you is you've got alternatives you want, which is 401, Highway 7, or whatever county road you want to take. I mean, the government's in a real, this is a real dilemma for users. What do we do? I suppose if you stop, if everybody stops using it, presumably they'll have to lower the price because nobody will want the road. Um, but it, I don't know what on earth the, the government can do about it. It seems to me it's a private sector that owns a company. and I mean, it's like somebody starting up a car company and selling cars. Yeah. They can sell them at whatever price they want. And I think people would be a little bit more accepting of the high rates if, in fact, the money was going back to the province of some way. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Of course. And that's exactly what you said earlier. I mean, I think it's money, it's money that goes back into either improved public transit. I mean, there is a strong argument for saying that if you charge toll, some of the revenues are going to improving the public transit yeah. system, better train service or better high-speed service of some kind run by the public sector of course it would so what can we learn from the 407 experience well i would think don't do it again yeah um unfortunately i mean this is the major artery uh, as an alternative to and they s- and they sold a major revenue generator oh yeah they said yeah of course he did yeah yeah of course he did and um it's uh, as it turns out i mean the only thing it would have been I suppose you might have argued, and of course it hasn't happened. When they sold it back, and let's suppose whatever price they got for it back in uh, 1999, uh, they sold it, and it turned out that when they sold it to a private company to put tolls on, people stopped using it. Mm-hmm. Well, the company's revenue would have dropped, and maybe everybody then would have said, oh, the government did the smart thing. They sold it because it was a loser. Yeah. But it's not yeah. obviously not a loser. I yeah. mean, it's a big winner. And, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the rationale really was for selling the, the highway, because I'm not affiliated with any of the political parties, yeah. nor do I know what goes on in their thinking. But, I, I I mean, there were lots of newspaper articles and things that came out and said it was basically to grab some quick cash to try and prove we balance the budget, because yep. remember that was one of the major themes of the yep. Harris government, they're going to balance the budget. Well, you know, a one, one-off to balance the budget is a, not a... Exactly. Especially when another party comes in and runs the debt back up again. I mean, this is just cyclical. That's the way it goes. Um, Now, the province owns uh, uh, the the company that owns the original highway. um, They don't own the extension, which was just now completed uh, all the way to 115. So the province still does generate, I guess, the monies from 115 uh, westward to about Oshawa or so. Uh, Well, I I think it's, it's, no, it's it's even closer than it's, it's Brock. Is Brock Road? Is Brock Road the end? 
Yeah, Brock Rhodes and Pickering. Yeah, and Pickering. I, there, there's a there's one of those gantries there. You know, where you pass through. If you're heading east, you pass through a gantry just before you get to Brock Road. That's right. the end of the private sector. Right. That's right. Then yeah. you pass through another gantry going all the way to 115. Right. So the Brock the Road, so from Brock Road to the 115, the province actually owns. Yeah. And the, if you look at the toll rates there, I believe they're considerably lower. They are. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And now, right. mind you, that's a part of the highway that is less populated because there's more farmland between Brock and that's, 115 that's right. as opposed to the other direction towards Burlington. That's, um, okay. So obviously the government has to be careful here to make sure they don't jump on board with yeah. 407. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, I'd be surprised if they did. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. And this is like a 99-year lease, so we'll get it oh. back just in time to see uh, the automobile disappear. <laughs> like, it might. It'll it, be interesting it to see what is, what, what's left of it after 99 years. You know, it's interesting. We're ta- we, well, we spend time talking about... Uh, tolls in there and uh, and w- one of the interesting things i think that you can talk about is what should the province do on its other highways you mm. know uh the ones around hamilton the q queen the 401 uh i mean is there a case for for some kind of road pricing charge i did a uh, piece uh, back oh, about a month ago i guess it came out and i took a look at uh, some recent data that the national energy board had produced and i took a look at the uh, uh, they they put in their data used for automobiles, gasoline and diesel for automobiles and uh, electricity for these new electrical vehicles coming out. And they have it projected through to about 2040, I think it is now. And I just took a quick look at it. If you look at that, uh, the demand for gasoline-driven engines is going to fall dramatically starting in about another four or five years. Mm-hmm. And the demand for electric vehicles is going to rise dramatically starting in that same time same time period and if the province is using gas tax revenue now to fund roads what happens when people stop buying gas to yeah, run cars because point. they go to electricity hmm. where are we going to get the money then for the roads are you going to put some kind of road vehicle charge a kilometer charge you know the, uh, to capture those who use the road uh, this is going to become a huge issue and one that uh, i don't even think the province is well, I'm sure they're thinking about it, but I don't see them doing anything about it yet. And again, because of the backlash from the 407, I'm sure that makes them very hesitant about tolls on other roads. Well, well, and that's interesting. And, and if, if you look at some of the journalist articles that have been written on roads, it's one of the things that the, uh, the writers have said, mm-hmm. um, that basically you can, you can assume, as I do, that road tolls are a good thing. I'm, look, I'm saying a reasonably priced road yeah, justifiable yeah. road tolls, not exorbitant ones. Road tolls are a good thing uh, because you're asking the person who uses the asset to pay for the asset but this kind of thing on the 407 is just going to turn the uh, public against it in a dramatic fashion it's going to make it much much harder to i would think to do anything harry kitchen has been with us professor emeritus at trent university talking about the 407 who have announced they're going to increase their rates during summer uh, i guess to encourage people to use other alternatives like the 401 where we're all stopped uh harry thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated Okay, thank you. Take care. That is uh, Harry Kitchen, and he is from Trent University. Uh, Studied the 407 quite a bit. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.